Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Bernice Halbern, your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Rabbi Elaine Rose-Glickman, author of The Messiah and the Jews, 3,000 Years of Tradition, Belief, and Hope. Her new book was published just this year by Jewish Lights Publishing. It's available at bookstores, online, and directly from Jewish Lights Publishing, which, in my experience, is really an amazing publishing company, and I recommend it to you highly. Rabbi Glickman is a featured speaker Sunday, November 3rd at the Evelyn Rubenstein Jewish Community Center. For those of you who are near or in Houston, Texas, where Rabbi Glickman is is a long popular uh, speaker and educator. In addition to being an author and speaker, she's known for her excellence in teaching. Her last book on parenting was the National Jewish Book Award finalist. The Messiah and the Jews, the subject of our conversation today, is a succinct and eminently readable account of Jewish views of the Messiah and Messianic redemption, interpreted for the modern reader. Rabbi Glickman writes for everyone, regardless of religious faith. Welcome, Rabbi Glickman. Um, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. Um, I'm delighted to have a chance to share with our listeners today um, your background and uh, a conversation about your new book. I really enjoyed reading it, and I recommend it highly. Thank um, you. If you could tell our listeners briefly about your background and how you came to write this book, please. Absolutely. I am a rabbi. I was ordained a rabbi in 1998, and I have been interested in the Messiah for many, many years before that. I've actually been waiting for the Messiah since I was 15 years old. So I didn't know it at the time. I was, like many people, a disaffected teenager. I had a crush on a boy in my driver's ed class who didn't know who I was. I was waiting to wake up super skinny and perfect. And every day I told myself things have to get better than this. What I didn't realize at the time is wishing and hoping and waiting and expecting things to get better than this is actually a very Jewish concept. In many ways, our people has embodied this concept for thousands of years as we waited for the Messiah. But in all of my years of religious school, all of my years studying Judaism and religion at university, all of my years of rabbinical school, even, I did not learn about the Messiah. It wasn't until years after I was ordained a rabbi that I began to study and to research on my own, and the literature, the belief, the hope that I found in studying Jewish tradition about the Messiah was so fascinating and so compelling and so inspiring that I felt I just had to share it with others and put it into a book so people can access this marvelous and this amazing tradition. And that's that's part of what makes your book so um, um, 
uh, appealing uh, to just to see on the cover the Messiah and the Jews. It's like, oh, uh, I never hear that discussed. I never hear that concept discussed. Uh, let's open this and see what it's all about. I wonder if you might read a very brief excerpt from the beginning of the book, which helps, I think, put it in perspective for our listeners. Oh, I'd be happy to. This is from page one of chapter one, and it's entitled, The Messiah is Coming. The Messiah is Coming. The phrase might conjure images that make us wince. Unwashed, would-be prophets waving signs outside an office building. Bumper stickers warning non-believers of earthly misery while the faithful are swept up to heaven. Irrational and exuberant and just plain inappropriate proclamations when normal people are simply trying to make it through the day. It is no wonder that we hesitate to say the Messiah is coming, and no wonder that we shrink from those who do. It is no wonder, but it is a terrible shame. For saying the Messiah is coming is not the exclusive province of the fundamentalist or the evangelical or the slightly unhinged. Saying and believing that the Messiah is coming is actually a universal privilege in our special birthright as Jews. The Messiah is coming. Our lives, our history, hold significance and purpose. God cares for us and watches over us and has a plan for us. What happens to us matters. Things will get better than this. However we choose to say it, we can and we should say it. Saying it has sustained our ancestors for thousands of years, and saying it will sustain us and our children. And letting ourselves believe it, well, that's even better. The conviction that the Messiah is coming is Judaism's greatest gift to the world. It is a promise of meaning. It is a source of consolation. It is a wellspring of creativity. It is a reconciliation between what is and what should be. And it is perhaps our most powerful statement of faith in God, in humanity, and in ourselves. Wow. Good. That is fantastic. Thank you. Um, why, Rabbi Glickman, perhaps you could share with us, why is the subject important now? I think it has always been important on an individual level. I think we all have the dark nights of the soul. We all have times of despair. We all have times when we wonder what the purpose is, what the meaning is, why we suffer, why God, who loves us and who is all-powerful, lets the world and the people in it function as we do. I think the idea that there is a meaning, that there is a purpose to our lives and our history is something that, as individuals, we always need. But I do think these times, as you said, are especially important times in which to remember the Messiah. It's certainly no secret that we're living in times of upheaval, of uncertainty, of difficulty. Now, historically, these times can lead to persecution, they can lead to blame, they can lead to division, and they can even lead to warfare among people and among nations. It's good to remember during times like this that we are not the first to confront such difficulty. And it's good to remember that, like our ancestors, we can choose to live with faith and with hope. You certainly make a compelling case. Now, many of us don't think of Jews and the Messiah together. It's For many of us, it's a Christian topic. And perhaps the only allusion to the Messiah that many of us know comes from the scene in Fiddler on the Roof when his Tevye and his neighbors are forced from their homes and have to leave their village. One of the villagers says, we've been waiting for the Messiah for 2,000 years. Maybe now would be a good time for him to come. In, in fact, the Messiah is, from what you explained to us in your book, a very, very much of a Jewish concept. What, what is the Jewish idea of the Messiah? What does it mean? The idea 
of the Messiah is truly as old as Judaism. And it's so true what you said, that it has been overshadowed by Christian faith and Christian teaching. I think the Jewish teachings on the Messiah also can be very difficult to access and very difficult to understand. So it's easy sort of to put them by the wayside. But I think it is important, as you said, to reclaim this idea of her Judaism. What the Messiah really means has meant throughout the thousands of years of Jewish Messianic tradition is a belief that things will get better than this. When the image of the Messiah began, it began as early we see it as the Bible. The word Messiah literally means anointed one, a human figure where oil is poured on their head, literally and figuratively, someone who is singled out for some special purpose to advance the cause of God in Israel. Um, in its original form, the Messiah was viewed as a human figure who would unite Israel, who would restore Jewish rule to the land of Israel, who would bring those in exile back to the land of Israel, and who would usher in a time of peace and prosperity and security. The Messiah was understood as a human being who would be born and live and die like any other human being, but he would be anointed in the sense that he would be chosen, singled out to advance the cause of God in Israel. Over time, of course, the term Messiah came to mean much, much more. So why has it become seemingly foreign to our notion of Judaism? That's a really good question. I think in part it's because the literature about the Messiah is so difficult to understand and so difficult to access. You have to look sometimes in accounts that are available only in foreign languages. You have to look in this part of the Talmud, in this part of the Midrash, in this part of medieval literature. It's very hard to find and synthesize all of the meanings together in a way that people can understand, which is what I hope to do in the writing of this book. I think it's also because the Messiah has obviously become such a central part of Christian theology that, as you said, it's easy to dismiss it as, oh, that's something that's Christian, and to forget that the Messiah is actually a figure of Jewish origin and a Jewish idea. I think it's also because many accounts of the Messiah, they do seem irrational. They seem unscientific. They seem mythical. And we're rational people here in the 21st century. We're not always comfortable with embracing the Jewish traditions of myth and the Jewish traditions. It may seem less than rational, um, less than easily apprehended. I think also people can understand or misinterpret the meaning of the Messiah as encouraging us doors to wait around for this otherworldly figure to come and to redeem us rather than to act and to make the world better as we can right now. So I think some of we fear that focusing on the Messiah will compromise our commitment to making things better in this world through our own efforts. Wow. So your, your book can really reintroduce the notion of the Messiah and make it a reality for, for your readers today. I hope so. Thank you. Among the various notions of Messiah over 3,000 years, which one holds meaning for you? And why, why should it be meaningful for our readers? One of the images of the Messiah that I find most meaningful is one that is constant through all of the different visions and beliefs about the Messiah that our ancestors have had for 3,000 years. And that is the idea that the time of the Messiah will be a time of radical change, that the world as we know it will be extremely, extremely, extremely different, that with the time of the Messiah will be sort of a revelation of our purpose, the purpose of human suffering and the purpose of human history. And everything we hear in the prophets, all that is crooked shall be made straight. And I find that so meaningful because there is injustice in this world, there is suffering, and it is 
impossible for us as human beings to understand and to explain it. The idea that there is a divine plan and that all of the things that happen to us have a purpose, have a meaning, is something that I find very compelling and very meaningful as a human being, as a rabbi, as a Jew. One of the things that I love about believing in the Messiah is to believe that not only will things get better than this, but that I will be able to understand um, why things have been, you know, perhaps less than perfect up till now. One of the things that we find um, written about the Messiah in Jewish tradition that I just love is that in the time of the Messiah, every person will possess property in mountain and in valley and lowland. And the idea that people will possess property in mountain, valley, and lowland might not immediately seem so fascinating. But what our ancestors were envisioning is that every person will possess his property, that there will be men who are wealthier than others, men who are landholders and others who are slaves, that everybody will enjoy equally the bounty and the prosperity um, that many of us today recognize is not distributed equally. There are also passages talking about how all the nations of the world will be united by the same language and standing shoulder to shoulder, we will call upon God's name. The idea of the people of this world, as we know, we're divided by such enmity, such misunderstanding, such intolerance, all of us standing together, calling upon God in the same language as brothers and sisters. I find that immensely appealing and immensely beautiful. Now, it's certainly a big dream, but why not dream big? We have a big God, we have a big history, and we are people of great hope. It's very appealing. Um, let's talk about the identity of the Messiah. One tradition you explain is that the Messiah must be a descendant of King David. Where, where does this tradition come from? And are there alternatives? I'm sorry, you didn't hear the last part of your question. Is there an alternative? Absolutely. Thank you. The reason that King David came to be associated with the Messiah is because actually in the Bible, God singles out and calls three different people. The Messiah. Now, this is what I call a Messiah with a lowercase m, not the Messiah, the capital M Messiah that we talk about today. But at this time, God in the Bible talks about three specific kings whom God anointed, um, whom God singled out to advance the cause of Israel. One of those kings, and the most prominent of those kings, was King David. He was definitely the most prominent and definitely the most fitting, you might say, in the model of what we expect of the Messiah. He united Israel. He did not build the temple in Jerusalem, though he conceived the temple in Jerusalem. He had a unique relationship with God. He was a musician. He was a poet. He was a warrior, and he was a worshiper. He was a conqueror, and he was the psalmist. He was exactly the way that you would like your anointed one, your capital M Messiah to be. Also, I think in practical, for practical reasons, the fact that the Messiah should be a descendant of King David was, um, was emphasized. Though it's stated clearly in the Bible that God will choose someone from the stock of Jesse, who is the father of David. Throughout the Bible, it talks about the house of David as being the one who will restore the glory of Israel. Also, this took on some very practical significance, too. During the Second Temple period, and really since then, the insistence that the Messiah be a descendant of King David, it actually helps to cut down on the claims of false messiahs, if you will, because can you prove that you were descendant of the house of David? Of course not. After the 
destruction of Jerusalem after so many thousands of years, no one can prove that they're truly a descendant of King David, and therefore no false messiah is able to rise and make a compelling case for being treated as God's anointed one. In your book, Rabbi Glickman, you describe how the Messiah went from being a person to being a supernatural being. Why did this transformation occur? I think that first for several reasons. Um, historically, one of the reasons that it occurred was because of the Babylonian exile. In the year 586, before the Common Era, the Jews who were exiled from the city of Jerusalem, from the southern kingdom, the temple was destroyed, and we were exiled among the Babylonians. Now, at that point, incredible as it is to imagine, Judaism should have died out. Our Judaism was concentrated on bringing sacrifices and worshiping God at the temple in Jerusalem and living in the land of Israel. Now, at this point, there was pretty much no land of Israel anymore, no Jewish sovereignty over the land, no Jewish sovereignty over Jerusalem, and no temple. What happened to many other peoples of that time who had similar situations, who were conquered by greater nations, was they simply died out. They took on the gods and the religions and the practices of the people among whom they were living, and their original religion, their faith, their beliefs died out. But of course, that didn't happen to Judaism. Rather than dying out, we got even stronger. Rather than seeing the Babylonians and the Babylonian gods as stronger than us and stronger than our God, we actually said, well, the Babylonians are God's agents. God, our God, meant for this to happen. Our God meant for God's temple to be destroyed in order to punish us, in order to teach us a lesson, in order to advance the causes of human history. Where before, we might have understood God as, in our worship of God, as being centered in the land of Jerusalem, and God as being primarily the God of Israel or the God of the Jews. Now we came to see and understand that wherever we went, God was there that under whatever human rule we lived, still God was supreme over all of them. That everything that happened to us showed God's will and showed God's power. Rather than being a sort of particular God, limited to the Jews, limited to Jerusalem, limited to the land of Israel, we came to God as a universal God over all peoples and God and all nations. So now we are not only a small people, we become a universal people, if you will, with a universal role to play. We have a universal mission, and we need a universal Messiah. The Messiah will no longer advance simply the cause of Israel, but the cause of the whole world. Now, clearly, no ordinary person can redeem the entire universe. Therefore, the Messiah began to take on these much greater roles um, and to be seen not merely as a human being, but as a superhuman figure, which is, with, if you will, a supernatural mission. You know, another, um, to, to me, particularly um, interesting aspect of your discussion of the Messiah in your book uh, describes the Messiah historically as identified as a warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my my thinking was uh, perhaps today that a Messiah is connected with a person who uh, promises peace, um, and yet the, you make a persuasive case that historically uh, he was identified, he or she, as a warrior. You describe, uh, quote, terrifying images of violent battles and shameful defeat, close quote, after which God would triumph. This partnering of warfare with the Messiah seems foreign to us today. Um, could you place it for us in, in time and explain it? Absolutely. 
what we may find as off-putting and terrifying. This may sound strange, but for our ancestors, these images were actually somewhat comforting. Our ancestors who lived in times of war, who knew war, who knew persecution, who knew upheaval, they probably wondered, where is God? Where is the Messiah? Are things going to get better than this? Is there any meaning? And for them to see the terror and the violence and the persecution that was all around them, and to think these must be what um, came to be called the birth pangs or the footsteps of the Messiah was extremely, extremely comforting. Not to see what they were living through as challenges of violence and war and persecution without end and without meaning, but to see it as a devastating and terrible and horrible but still necessary step to redemption, I can imagine, was for them immensely comforting. Even as early as the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible, we find God saying that we are going to have terrible times of suffering, but after these times of suffering, we will have reconciliation um, with God and with one another. In the Talmud, there's an amazing, um, very disturbing, but very compelling passage talking about how we will suffer all of these a terrible times of societal upheaval, of war, of violence, of degradation, and persecution, and it ends, and then to whom will we turn only to our only to our parent in heaven. And I think the understanding was, as difficult as it may seem to us, what the understanding for them was that all of the difficult and terrible things that they were enduring would have meaning and would have purpose. And I think for them to see the Messiah's footsteps and the birth pains of the Messiah reflected in everything that they were suffering, I think it may be difficult for us, but I think it was uh, very meaningful to them. And I think it could possibly be meaningful for us as well. The uncertainty and the devastation that we see all around us, if we're able to sort of look through it um, and to imagine it's all part of a greater plan, I think we can imagine just how comforting this must have been for our ancestors as well. Well, that, that certainly puts it in perspective. Um, when a God or the Messiah go to war, are, is their target a, a changing target depending upon who is uh, causing misery or strife? It, it can depend. Um, one of the images that we often see when it does talk about sort of the enemies of God and Messiah, who the foes are in these supernatural battles, one are these mythical figures called Gog and Magog, and they are mentioned, um, Gog from the land of Magog in the book of Ezekiel, as sort of these eternal enemies, if you will. And the way that in the apocalyptic literature that our ancestors wrote about the Messiah, especially in medieval times, they amplified um, the figure of Gog and they came to see Magog, not as a place, but as a separate person. Um, and they saw Gog and Magog as sort of these mythical um, enemies of Israel, embodying war and hatred and strife and enmity. There is a magnificent, magnificent piece of Messianic literature called Sefer Zerubbabel, the Book of Zerubbabel, and it invents a separate enemy of God and Messiah whose name is Arnalus. And there are these incredible depictions, these descriptions of just how hideous and horrible and wicked and evil Arnalus is. Um, if you look deeper at the text, it seems to link Arnalus with some of the enemies 
that our ancestors were facing at the time, um, including the rise of a hostile Christianity, Christianity that was hostile to the Jews and persecuting the Jews. Um, but even just the figure himself is really um, quite arresting and fascinating. Wow. You write that the masses loved texts that described apocalyptic violence. Could you tell our listeners about this tradition of apocalyptic violence, please? Sure. Um, the apocalyptic violence, the apocalypse, um, basically has to do with the idea of the end of the world, sort of what we would talk about, um, perhaps at the end of it, at the end of day, the end of the world as we know it. It is the literature is bloody. It is a violent. It's full of otherworldly battles that lead ultimately to redemption. If you read them, they're full of images of, of blood in the sky, of these terrible battles, of thousands of people falling dead in the valley, and it's certainly not just the other two fall. It's full of Jewish um, dead as well. Many um, before the before the advent of the Messiah. What you can probably think about if you read some of this literature, and much of it is not available in translation, but some of it is, and if you look at it, what you really think is, wow, I didn't know the Jews would write this way. I didn't know that this was part of Jewish tradition, and it will read not that differently um, from all of the left behind and the discussions of the rapture um, that we saw in Christianity, especially you know, around 2000, around 2012, um, when we see these accounts of the end of the world. Um, these really fall right in line. And it's interesting, too, that the literature, this type of literature that makes us so uncomfortable today, it also made the rabbis and sort of the learned and the elite of their time very uncomfortable as well. This apocalyptic literature was really devoured by, uh, I guess you would say by the masses, if you will, whereas you had the intellectuals, the rabbis, you had the leaders who were saying, wait, don't read this stuff. This is not something that we... Um, believe this is not something that we think, you know, is correct or is right for you, but people devoured it. People absolutely loved it anyway. Amazing. Now, lest our readers think that the Messiah was necessarily male, uh, uh, let me turn to Hepzibah. Is that how it's pronounced? Is it Hepzibah or Hepzibah? Hepzibah, huh? Hepzibah, okay. Uh, you, you write about Hepzibah as a woman who played a leading role in bringing on the end of days. Uh, it was a. It was rare, surely, to have a woman play the pivotal role. Could you uh, talk with us uh, briefly about who was Hepzibah? Absolutely. You are correct about it being rare to have women in a pivotal role. I have read a hundred, probably thousands of pages of Messianic literature. When you find anything in reference to a woman. It is extremely notable. Um, except for Hepzibah, I'll talk about in just a moment, the way that women are portrayed in Messianic literature is, first of all, pretty much non-existent. Um, second, it's just sort of complaining um, or on the sidelines, not doing much at all. Hepzibah is an amazing and very welcome exception. The book that I mentioned before, The Sefer Zeruzel, The Book of Zeruzel, is the one of really the defining piece of Jewish apocalyptic literature of medieval times. It was extremely influential, even on the rabbis, the ancient rabbis who didn't like apocalyptic literature, who felt it was for the masses and it was no good. Um, even they could not help but be affected and stirred by the book of Jerubazel, by Sefer Jerubazel. And Hepzibah is a central figure in the book of Jerubazel. She is the mother of the Messiah. 
And according to Central Jerusalem, she's not merely the mother of the Messiah in that she stands on the sidelines and watches her son take center stage. She is a participant, a warrior in all of the action in the Messianic battles that unfold in Sefer Jerusalem. Hephzibah is a tremendous assistant, a tremendous warrior. She kills um, two of the enemy kings in the Messianic battles, and according to Sefer Jerusalem, she actually guards the gate to Jerusalem until her son, the Messiah, can enter and usher in the Messianic time. According to Jewish tradition, there is also um, a staff, an ancient staff. If you remember when Moses stood in the burning bush and Moses stood before Pharaoh with his staff and he threw down his staff and it turned into the serpent and then he picked it back up before Pharaoh and his courtiers. That staff, according to Jewish tradition, has been handed down in every generation and it has always been handed down to a man, except for Hephzibah. According to Sefer's Rubidel, Hephzibah was entrusted with this staff and it is she who, at the culmination of the Messianic battles, presents this staff to her son, to the Messiah, so that he can usher in the Messianic time. She's an absolutely fascinating figure. Her name, Hephzibah, literally means, my delight is in her. It is a name that we see associated with um, King Hezekiah in the Bible and also mentioned in the book of Isaiah. But she herself does not seem to have any roots um, in the Bible. She just appears to come out of nowhere. And what's also fascinating is that as influential as Sister Zerubbabel was, it influenced um, just about most of the apocalyptic literature that came afterwards. As influential as Sister Zerubbabel was, you never see another female figure in any of the literature that it inspired. It is her one moment in history. She is unique and she is fantastic. Um, and we never see her again. No one is quite sure by whom she is inspired. Some people imagine that she is intended as a foil to Jesus' mother Mary. Some people think that perhaps she was inspired by a female-led rebellion. Um, but we we really have no idea. This is just conjecture. We're not quite sure where she came from. Um, but, you know, would have would have liked to see more of her in some of the other literature. She, of course, uh, plays this leading part that you just described so aptly for us um, in bringing the end of days. What What is meant by the end of days, and how, how were the end of days envisioned? When we talk about the end of days, we really mean the end of days as we know them, or the end of history as we know it. Um, it's the end of the days as they are now. Now, for some, the end of days is associated, as I said, with this um, these sort of bloody upheavals, with this apocalyptic literature. But I think we really could make the end of days a more neutral, um, even a friendly phrase, if you will, just by imagining it um, as any, not just with end of days, but with end of days as we know them. The end of the world as we know it, not necessarily as a bad thing, um, but maybe as the beginning of a good thing. The end of the world, as we know, the end of days as we know them, with their difficulty, with their hatred, with their war, with their violence, and the beginning of something much, much better, the beginning of something messianic. Um, and does this messianic end of days embrace Jews only, or is it universal? That is a great question, and there is literature certainly on both ends, um, and there is some literature I think that today would make us uncomfortable um, that talks about sort of the glorification of 
the Jewish people of Israel at the expense of the other nations of the world. Um, I think for people who read that type of literature, of course, it's going to make you uncomfortable. It's make you sort of disavow it. But I think it's important to remember what context it was written, that the people who were writing that kind of literature, who found meaning in that kind of literature, were not living among people of different faiths, people of different nations in friendship and intolerance and in brotherhood and sisterhood. Their experience, unfortunately and tragically, um, was very, very different where people from other nations, people from other faiths um, were, were persecutors, um, were people who sought to kill them um, and to erase their way of life. However, even with that caveat, I will say that what is amazing to see is actually just how universal most of this literature is. That the idea, as I said, that all humanity will be united and shoulder to shoulder will call out to God in one voice that this is not intended to be a time, the Messianic time is not intended to be this endless era when we gloat over, we were right, we were right, we were vindicated um, at all, or when the people who are not Jews see themselves, you know, mired in eternal suffering, eternal torture, eternal pain. Um, the vast majority of Messianic literature is not like that at all. It sees one of the glories of the Messiah as bringing reconciliation um, between people and between nations, even between former enemies, so that all together we can truly be united um, to worship God and to enjoy the blessings of the Messianic time. So it's a tradition we can be comfortable in embracing. Um, l- let me ask you, for those Jews who do think about the Messiah, um, some think about it in connection with Elijah and his special role in connection mm-hmm. with this Messiah. How did Elijah come to have this special place in Jewish tradition? And what was his role? The book of Malachi, the book of the one of the books of the prophet, the book of Malachi, um, talks about that God will send Elijah at the coming of this day of the Lord. Elijah came to be associated with the idea of, you might call him the herald of the Messiah, that he would not bring the Messiah himself, he was not the Messiah, but he would be the one to announce the Messiah. Now, why did he merit this particular role? That's a good question. As you know, Elijah is just such a central, fascinating, in many cases, beloved figure in Jewish tradition. We read in the Bible that he didn't die, for example, but that he was taken up alive to heaven in the, that chariot of fire, that famous chariot of fire image. It originated in the Bible with the chariot that um, was to, that brought Elijah alive up to heaven. We are told, uh, according to tradition, that he never died, but that he returns to earth to look for those people who are needy, who are poor, who are suffering, and yet who are righteous, and to give them the reward. Well, the parallel with the idea of Israel, Jewish people as being a people who is suffering, a people who is needy, a people who await something better, and then Elijah coming to herald the reward. You can certainly see the parallel with him announcing the Messianic time. He was also a passionate defender of God. He had a special relationship with God and a special role. So perhaps your answer is yourself, um, you know, that he, that he deserved it, to be the herald of the Messiah. Even people who may not feel that they believe in the Messiah or are waiting for the Messiah might be surprised to hear that every time you open the door for Elijah on the Passover Seder, every time you finish the blessings of Haggala and end by singing Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, every time you do those things, you are actually 
acting out the idea of waiting for Elijah to come, waiting for asking Elijah to come, imploring Elijah to come. And why do you want him to come? Because you wanted to announce that the Messiah is here. So every time we open the door for Elijah on the path of the Seder, every time we sing Eliyahu after Havdalah, we are actually actively waiting for and asking for the Messiah. Well, that is beautiful. So your book helps us to um, understand that we're already partway there in terms of knowing about the Messiah without even knowing what we're doing. So uh, l- let me ask you, traditional Hebrew prayer affirms the belief in the resurrection of the dead. Okay. Um, I'm always intrigued when I read the Hebrew, thinking that those who perhaps stand around me uh, reading a translation are unknowing of and perhaps would be quite surprised by this repeated reference to resurrection. Uh, can you explain, please, this faith in the resurrection of the dead and how it relates to the coming of the Messiah? Absolutely. I agree with you. I think people would be very surprised to know that traditional Jewish prayer affirms the belief in the resurrection of the dead. That is something we definitely think of as a Christian concept, as an irrational concept, something that's not part of Judaism. Um, and it it's probably a big surprise to many that the resurrection of the dead is um, an important principle in Jewish tradition and Jewish faith um, and having to do with the with the coming of the Messiah. Now, while the idea of a physical resurrection of the dead were rational people living in the 21st century can well understand how the idea would make people very, very uncomfortable. But um, before someone just dismisses it entirely, I do ask them to think about this that the idea of believing in a physical resurrection of the dead, it shows the ultimate power, the ultimate triumph of life over death. The idea that a body could be physically resurrected, but the soul could be reunited by the body, or could be reunited with the body. There is really, I think, no greater expression of God's power, of the power of life, and the idea that we matter, that God loves us that it is our soul as well as our body um, that matters, that it was all given by God, it was all created by God, and it will all be restored by God. So I think that that can be sort of a, a greater meaning um, in the belief in resurrection in a way that might be inspiring for people. The idea in Jewish tradition, though, that the dead will be resurrected, as we said, we testify to it um, in prayer in the second benediction of the Amidah. It's called the Giver Rope that praises God's power. And what is the central image of praising God's power? The central image is affirming a belief in the resurrection of the dead. Even the idea of having a bit of soil from Israel put in someone's grave when they pass away, the idea of, of where the bodies are facing um, towards the east, these are all actually vestiges of a belief that at some point in the future, all of the dead will, all the dead bodies will go to the land of Israel and will miraculously rise up and be resurrected. Now, I'm not saying you have to believe in this literally, but at least just to stop and to think about it and to imagine, as I said, just what a powerful statement it is of faith in God and the power of life. I think most people find at least that part very compelling. I, I love the way in this book, Rabbi Glickman, you remind your readers that the Messiah has his place. That is, in the end, it's not the Messiah, but it is God who triumphs. Uh, this seems like a crucial distinction that you make. Could you talk about this, please? Absolutely. As important as the Messiah is, and as much as we wait for the Messiah, talk about the Messiah, hope for the Messiah, dream about the Messiah, 
the Messiah never, never takes the place of God. The Messiah is always God's agent. The Messiah may sort of work with God, um, but is always subordinated to God. The Messiah is, um, is a figure of God and someone who is anointed by God, anointed by God to advance the cause of God. The Messiah is not independent from God and certainly, God forbid, not greater than God. There's a wonderful passage that I love in one of the apocalyptic literature pieces that I mentioned that envisions these messianic battles where the Messiah is about to complete the redemption of Israel, is about to usher in the messianic time, what we've dreamed of and hoped for for thousands of years. And it, the piece of literature says that God says to the Messiah, sit on my right, and says to all of the assembled people waiting for this messianic deliverance to unfold, see what God will do for you this day. That even at the culminating moment of redemption, that it's important to remember that it's God, not the Messiah, who ultimately brings redemption and who's ultimately the one who saves us. That's beautiful. Uh, let, let me uh, turn to an intriguing point uh, you've, you've shared just a few minutes ago with listeners that uh, during Havdalah, we, uh, we talk about Elijah. And um, also, of course, during the Seder, we open the door for Elijah. You raise an intriguing point in the text also where you connect the shofar blowing to the coming of the Messianic Age. This is the kind of detail in your very readable book that I think will resonate with the reader now and whenever in the future the reader might hear the shofar blown. Could you explain this uh, for our listeners, please? Absolutely. Since ancient times, the shofar has been used not for not just for worship, but also for announcements, to announce something that is important for a battle cry, for sharing information, for telling people, listen up, basically. That's one of the ways that it functions. Listen up. And what could be more of an important announcement than the coming of the Messiah? So in some ways, it just it makes sense very practically that the shofar blast would announce the coming of the Messiah. But of course, there's more to it than that. I think one of the primary images and associations we have with the shofar is, of course, on Rosh Hashanah, where we talk about and acknowledge the creation of the world, the unity of creation, and where we all stand in judgment before God. So the image of the shofar as reminding us of the unity of creation, of the fact that we will stand in judgment, as we're told we'll do during the Messianic time, I think that's a very powerful association also. We also think, of course, about the shofar linked to the ram that Abraham sacrificed in place of his son during the binding of Isaac on Mount Moriah, which of course we read about um, from the Torah portion um, during Rosh Hashanah as well. When we call out on the shofar, when we blast the shofar, we're also, according to High Holiday Liturgy, we're also reminding God of the righteousness, of the unquestioning loyalty of Abraham. And we're asking that as descendants of Abraham, we receive some of that reward. And of course, what greater reward than at the giving uh, of the Messiah, than the bringing of the Messiah? That ram also that was sacrificed in place of Isaac on Mount Moriah, according to Jewish tradition, it its horns itself um, became shofar, it became shofar designated for special purposes. According to Jewish tradition, the ram that was sacrificed in place of Isaac, one of the horns became the shofar that was blown at the time the Torah was given on Mount Sinai, and the second shofar has been 
been stored up and is waiting to be blown as the shofar to be announced, to announce the coming of the Messiah in the Messianic time. So the idea of the shofar being blown during the Messianic time goes all the way back to the binding of Isaac and Abraham's faithfulness and loyalty on Mount Moriah. It's interesting to note the way that the shofar has been associated with the coming of the Messiah. If you look back at the accounts um, of the Six-Day War in June of 1967, when Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, when Jerusalem was liberated, the chief rabbi went to Jerusalem went to Westerwald, went to the Temple Mount, and what did he do to announce the liberation? He blew the shofar. So that in itself, I think, shows the, the power of the shofar to announce our redemption, to announce our liberation. And God willing, we'll, we'll hear it again when the Messiah comes. Right. And this, this explanation and the explanation you give in your book is such a rich takeaway, I think, for the reader, because it helps us to see in practices that we, we otherwise um, um, experience, uh, what the different levels of meaning and layers of meaning are that perhaps have uh, um, we've overlooked or never knew about in the past. So I think it's an amazingly enriching um, opportunity for us. Um, <laughs> now, um, let me ask you, in your last chapter, you urge the reader to, uh, quote, make the vision of the universe redeemed, close quote, a reality. And then you say, rather than sit back and wait for salvation, we can work actively to achieve it. And rather than yearn for the Messiah, we can, as it were, become the Messiah. Could you talk about this idea, please? Absolutely. I feel that one of the great things about Jewish Messianic tradition is that it does not absolve us of responsibility for making the world better and for doing what we can. There are passages that link the idea of keeping Shabbat, of keeping God's word, of keeping of Jewish practices, and atonement, atonement, repentance, treating one another properly and vowing to be better. Even some of our most sacred traditions link these practices with the coming of the Messiah. The idea is that we have a role to play, that we are in partnership with God, that although the work is certainly too great for us to, to do ourselves, I don't think, I think it's hard for any of us to believe that we're looking at the world around us, that we can perfect the world and bring a messianic time of unlimited and universal joy and hope and wellness and health and peace and brotherhood and sisterhood. I don't think anyone believes that we can do it all alone. And yet, um, as we read in Turkey and saying to our ancestors, we are not required to complete the work. We are not required to do all of the messianic work ourselves, but neither are we at liberty to abstain from it. That Jewish tradition does not allow us just to sit around and say, oh, I'll just wait for the Messiah to come. I'll just wait for God for the Messiah. I'll wait for someone else to redeem me. It is up to us as well, to work in partnership with God, to get our hands dirty, um, and to do what we can, as much as we can, in order to bring redemption. Um, you just mentioned Rabbi Glickman, Shabbat, and uh, certainly in your book, you describe Shabbat as a contemporary experience for each of us of the Messiah. Is, is this a figurative interpretation? Is this a break from tradition? How would you situate this interpretation of Shabbat as the Messianic experience within Jewish tradition? Actually, the idea of Shabbat being a foretaste of redemption is something that has been part of Jewish tradition um, for thousands of years. We are told 
Um, it's by a rabbi that Shabbat is one sixtieth, one sixtieth of the world to come. That the peace, the relief, the holiness, the joy that we experience on Shabbat is a foretaste of the goodness that will come to us in the Messianic time. It is a time on Shabbat, ideally, when we can sort of withdraw from the work, from the difficulty, from the challenges of the six days of creation, the six days of our work week, and when we can rest from this reality and dream of a better reality, the time when everything is the peace and the joy and the holiness of Shabbat. Shabbat also, of course, celebrates the culmination of creation, the unity of creation, the unity of all that God created, um, that peace and that harmony that we know has, you know, has yet to be restored. Not only the belief in sort of the philosophy of Shabbat, but actually even some of the practices of Shabbat reflect this belief. Some people say that the elaborate Shabbat meal is a parallel or a foreshadowing of the feast of the righteous, that this wonderful messianic meal is going to be enjoyed by the righteous when the Messiah comes, according to tradition. The white that we wear on Shabbat is a symbol of the purity and the holiness that will wash over us during the time of the Messiah, and that even the special prayers and the songs and that Shabbat spirit, that extra soul that we're told were given on Shabbat, the angels that accompany us throughout Shabbat, that these are sort of foreshadowing the foretaste of the communion and the union with the divine that we will all experience during the Messianic time. And with that, you uh, wrap up a book of 3,000 years of tradition with a vision that's very empowering and uplifting. Um, so it's I really highly recommend this book to our listeners. Let me ask you, Rabbi Glickman, we always conclude our podcast by asking, what will your next project be? Do you have a next project you might share with us? I, I do. I will say I just started blogging for the Jewish Journal at jewishjournal.com. I'm doing a blog called Sacred Parenting, which is harking back to an earlier book that I wrote. So I have that blog that I'm doing about two times a week. In addition, I just signed a contract with an agent for a book that is a complete departure from the Messiah and the Jews. My earlier work had been in parenting, and um, I wrote a book about Jewish parenting in 2009. And this is actually a secular sort of tongue-in-cheek book about parenting um, that I'm, I just finished a book proposal for, and hopefully it will be selling in the next you know, few months. And it's called Tongue-in-Cheek, um, Your Kids of Rap and it's all your fault. So it is a completely different departure from everything I've done so far. I'm also working on a book called Matriarch, The Amazing Lives, Stories, and Lessons of the Women of Genesis, where I'm taking 12 of the women from Genesis and in one for each chapter, just writing either a first or second person essay, sort of reimagining her life and telling her story um, in her own words from her own perspective. So those are the things that I'm working on right now. Thank you for asking. Well, these projects sound very exciting, and I hope that you'll return and share with your with our listeners uh, information and your insights into the topics that you're taking on now. I think uh, yeah, I look forward to it. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Today, we had the pleasure of hearing Rabbi Elaine Rose Glickman talk about her fascinating new book, Now Out in Paperback, paperback about Jewish views of the Messiah, 3,000 years of tradition, belief, and hope, and what we can do to bring the Messiah into our lives and into the world today. This is a very rewarding book to read that will change your view of Jewish tradition, and I urge you to buy it and read it. <laughs> 